Welcome to Ridgewood Talks. Through this podcast, we will be introducing you to some of the leaders and legends in our village. We'll keep you updated about fascinating local events, and we'll dig into the town's hot topics and so much more. But first, let me introduce myself. I'm Jeannie Johnson, the founder of Ridgewood Talks and Ridgewood Walks. The goal of these initiatives is to create a kinder, more connected, and more vibrant community. I'm thrilled to be co-hosting this podcast with my good friend and all-around wonderful guy, Jordan Kaufman. We look forward to meeting with you weekly and hearing your thoughts on who and what you'd like to learn about in our beautiful hometown. Enjoy this episode. Hey, Jordan, how you doing? Lovely. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm fine. You know what? So many fun things have happened since we last spoke. Um, I had a little meeting with John Luckenbill at the Duffield Recording Studio at Ridgewood High School. And guess what? What do you got? (laughs) You're so good at this bantering. Um, We're going to be collaborating with the students this spring, and we're going to start recording episodes in their booth. And if we're presentable, we can even incorporate video into this crazy little newscast. Amazing. I think, you know, what Duffield donated to the school and how the school is taking those funds and really use them to just, you know, enhance the opportunities for kids to do more. I'm also super excited about this because it it gets more people in the community involved in what we're doing. And it, it also just, you know, gives the kids an opportunity to be part of this and and for us to be part of what they're doing. So I'm I'm really excited about this. Me too. And the other thing that I'm excited about is that we talked about possibly helping raise some money for them. So they're trying to find a little fund so our listeners can help keep that studio up to date and they can donate money and, and give the kids more opportunity. So I'm really excited about that. So listeners, stay tuned. That's going to kick off mid-March, beginning of April. So we're really excited about that. Uh, meanwhile, our guest today will continue our series of Ridgewood High School graduates who play a very big part in our village. And we are so, so lucky to have snagged this interview. We've been trying to connect with her for months, but she's a very busy career woman, a wife, a mom, and a volunteer. So it hasn't been easy to grab her attention, but I want to give a hearty and warm welcome to Diane O'Brien. As I mentioned, she is a Ridgewood High School graduate. And when all is said and done, she will have likely made the most long-term impact on our village than almost anyone I know. She was instrumental in creating Ridgewood's master plan. And for those of you who don't know, the master plan is a roadmap that will guide the physical, economic, and social development of the village for the next 10 plus years. We are lucky that Diane has lent her expertise to the village because our hometown gal started her education journey at Travel Elementary School. And then she went on to Benjamin Franklin. Then she received a BA degree from Boston University and wrote her thesis on the development of Paris, where she also studied. Then she went on to the Columbia Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation, where she received an MS in Urban Planning and an MS in Historic Preservation. There, her thesis was on measuring the full economic impacts of local historic district designations. But now Diane is a certified urban planner and historian. She is also the vice chair of the Village of Ridgewood Planning Board and a member of the Historic Preservation Commission. Welcome, Diane. Did I get it all? Such an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Color me impressed. 
no doubt. I feel like such a slacker. <laughs> so, uh, Diane, I guess, how do we turn Ridgewood into Paris? Ready, go. Oh, wow. <laughs> we need more outdoor dining for that first off. <laughs> At a girl, more I circle. like what you're saying. Uh, Diane, I know that you were very instrumental in pulling together Ridgewood's master plan. I know that your expertise and, and everyone on the planning board played a part of it, but I, I want to really start this off by thanking former mayors Ramon Heche and Susan Knudsen for spearheading the master plan initiative to begin with. I also want to recognize the newly sworn in members of the planning board, although I'm not exactly sure who they are and what their different designations are. So maybe you can help us understand that description and, and let us know who else is on the board with you. Um, we just had a reorganization meeting last Tuesday. David Refkin was sworn in. Rob Willis was sworn in. Pam Perone is now the new liaison from the Village Council. I think those are all the new people. Um, a few of them, like Richard Joel, have been on it. He's he's our chair. He got re-sworn in because his tenure had expired. And yeah, he was re-elected chair, which is awesome because he's great. He's also been instrumental in the master plan as well. I know James Van Gore is on the planning board, I believe. Yes. And did we say Michael Stern and Francis Bardo? And oh, Michael, Michael Stern is also new. Fran Bardo and James Van Gore and John Young and Darlene Johnson have all still been there. And I, I think they also have a year or two in their appointments. So tell me, what is the mission of the planning board? Our job is to make sure that larger changes in the village that come to us, whether it's Things like the master plan, which are huge or smaller things like lot subdivisions, just to make sure they're in keeping with what exists in the village and what we want the village to become. So part of the master plan was re-examining existing zoning, existing ordinances, um, existing land uses, existing trends, and just making sure they're in keeping with what the majority of the village wants and how we want everything to look, how we want everything to feel. And it's our job just to implement that, basically. Right, so what are some of the priorities? What is the first thing that we should do? Well, it, it personally, I think the flood resilience stuff is front and center. We need to figure out a way to incorporate. Some of it is very expensive. Our wonderful consultants gave us some ideas from Hoboken, like putting these big flood basins underneath the fields so it could capture rainwater when the um, brooks overflow. And there's also smaller things we can do for um, having like wet and dry flood proofing basements and everything and really focusing development outside the floodplains in the future would be immensely helpful. And I think that's going to be one of those issues that comes up more and more frequently now that we're having these ridiculous storms flooding everyone. And I think that should be front and center in what we implement first. We actually have a meeting to go through which action items we're going to tackle first. And that's the one I would like to push for first. I'd like to know if you don't do that, how will that affect the village? At this point, part of it is trying to preserve what we have for the future so that if we dry and wet floodproof properties, if we put in these storm basins and everything, the impacts of future flooding won't be as bad. And if we don't do it, then we're just going to have a much bigger mess in the future. To this day on all of the boards I've been on, the flood from, I don't remember, it was in the 90s, I think, and they lost like half of the records from town. It is still haunting the Zoning Board and the Historic Preservation Commission that we're missing like 30 years of all of these files that got lost and washed away. We need to preventatively avoid that. I know that they have um, some flood prevention that prevents water getting into the village hall, but I suppose that's only limited purpose too. Sometimes water can get in or over that too, right? 
Yeah, I the house that I lived in until I was five is on Warren Place, right next to Vets Field, and the basement was always wet. I was only five, but I can still picture the basement. And every time it rains here, I freak out, even though our basement's dry. <laughs> PTSD for water. So, so Diane, you said something that that just kind of clicked with me, and you know, in looking at the master plan, I will admit I have not read all four hundred and sixty glorious pages of it, but it really like, has like a ton of information. I mean, you you yeah, if you read that entire thing you are totally up to speed on kind of all the things happening in town, I feel. One of the really cool things they have towards the end is you have the elements and they labeled how expensive they are or how much time they take or how complicated it is. I just wonder, looking at those, does that for the planning board create some kind of priority set? Like if it's got more dollar signs, you guys like, eh, maybe if it's got more clocks on it are you guys like yeah we got to start now or you're you know maybe we push it off like i, I guess just how how do you guys quantify uh how to look at those elements so tonight we're actually going to go through it and the ones with like one clock and one money sign we will probably go through and try to knock those out as fast as possible because you might as well mm -hmm. and then for the other ones the ones that take more time the ones i know for a preservation commission there's a bunch where we want to list stuff on the state national registers like that's going to take time that could need grant money but we might as well get started as soon as we can so once all the low-hanging fruit is done the grant money will come in and we'll be able to move forward with the next items but you're right. Some of them have like four clocks on them and four money signs and ones with houses. That means the public input when whenever you get public input, that adds like an extra year to things. So I think it's important for us to implement as much as we can with the low hanging while still planning for the future. So we're not sitting there one day like, oh, no, we need all this money and all this time and we can't do anything like that's a waste. We spent so long doing this. We got to got to get moving on it. If I remember correctly, this process has taken about eight years. Is that correct? Yeah. And I suspect that part of the reason that it took so long was because of COVID. Um, I also know that it had a pretty hefty price tag on it. I think it was 250000 to start off with. I don't actually know. I know that I wrote the preservation part of it for free, so that knocked off like 10000 but I have no idea what the actual final price tag was. Well, that was very generous of you. Wow. I said, I enjoyed it. It was fun. I was on maternity leave. I am a nerd. It's fun. <laughs> well, I think we, we are the beneficiaries of your talent. I think it is money that is really well spent. Now we know what to expect in the future. I've read through many of the documents and all the grants that I've written too. And there are so many things back in, I think there was an engineering overview that was done like in 1986. And a lot of the recommendations from that still haven't been implemented. So exactly I'm like we got to get the ball rolling while people are still interested. The last master mm -hmm. plan was from 1983. I wasn't even alive then. Good year. Good year. <laughs> I hate to tell you, I graduated high school that year. Anyway, so some of the other things that are in the master plan that obviously are very exciting to me because I am a pedestrian plaza advocate. Is that one of the recommendations through the master plan? I believe it ended up being one. And I agree with you. I, mean, I think that would be wonderful. It would make it more like Paris, just like we said. Some of the other ones for downtown specific are the ordinances for uses downtown is so outdated. 
it actually has a list of all of the stuff can be done in town, like haberdasheries and stuff. Inclusionary but it, versus exclusionary exactly, is what we exactly. talked about. And like, that's what they did in the 60s. And we're, you know, 60 years after that, that needs to be completely redone because there's so much opportunity, especially with Amazon and online ordering. There's so much more opportunity for like experience-based land uses in town that would really benefit everyone. We talk a lot about this in, in the CBDAC committee. When you when we get back to that conversation about dollar signs and clocks on the master plan, this is a one dollar sign, one clock, and very little complexity to complete. Yeah. Going through some of our old ordinances and old ways we do things and just updating them. And it you don't even have to be that smart about it. All you have to do is look around at the other towns that surround <laughs> us that are successful and yeah. say, what do their ordinances say? And just try to reconcile why ours should be different or should be more similar. So it's that's super, super important. That one is huge. Yeah. One question I have for you, Diane, because this is, you know, I don't live in a, in a floodplain, but I do, you know, I've, I've been driving down Linwood and had a river that prevented cars from going through it when we've had flooding by Graydon and things like that. But one of the things that I feel the town is is hoping to improve on, and one of the things in the recent election, is improving our communication. So if you're, you know, doing a bunch of stuff to improve the floodplains, which we all can appreciate is important for the town, but how does the residents in town kind of know of all the effort that, you know, your group is doing, and the way that you're improving the overall town and you know, because people get caught up in this, all oh, my taxes go up, but they don't know where it comes from. And if we just communicate a little bit better, people could start to piece that together, I, I feel a little bit better. So is there any ambition to help in getting in the minds of residents uh, some of the great work that you guys are up to? That actually hasn't been discussed at all, but it's a really great idea. Like, especially with all the social media options that everyone has these days. I know everyone says that the um, village website has everything on it, but no one goes on the village website. So that's a really good idea. I'm actually going to bring that up with them tonight. And also back to your point about not living in the floodplain. A lot of this climate change stuff, which people in town don't realize, but I think a lot of people realized in one of those huge storms over the summer, Ridgewood has a lot of underground streams that they just built the houses on top of. And a lot of them, especially coming from the west side to the east side, actually come down through the central business district. So all of these basements were flooded that aren't even in floodplains. And mm. I think that's something that's going to be a super fun fact I learned on HPC across from... Um, Felina, where the opera house used to be, that was a marshland from up kind of where you live, up by Ridge. There was a river that came down and deposited water there. And then it went down through town that basically down to vets. And it took them 10 years to build this opera house because it kept flooding in the basement. And now that same stream goes under that toxic site on Franklin. And that's why a lot of the soil, that's why they're having trouble redeveloping that site because all the soil underneath takes it down. So even if you're not right next to a river, there's so many unknown rivers under us that are just going to keep coming up and coming up during these what, huge storms. What is that's the, interesting? I, I forget what those that, that underground water uh, kind of ways are called. They have a specific name for it. Does anyone know? Does anyone have that on their bingo card tonight? No, <laughs> I, 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 I can't remember oh, what I it was. It's 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 something. Uh, it's got kind of a cool name. 
Yeah, they just, I mean, back in the day, they weren't having these storms, so they just built everything on top of it and were like, don't worry about the stream. Another thing that I think someone addressed with me many years ago from the engineering department, they said that our sewer pipes are, you know, over 100 years old. And they said it's not a matter of if they burst, it's when they burst because they were made of clay. Occasionally, they'll get a crack in it here and there, and they repair those cracks with, I believe it's tar, and they are expecting those pipes to burst at some point too. So was that a addressed in the master plan? I think that was addressed in the infrastructure chapter. Mm-hmm. And that is definitely, it kind of reminds me of the city with the subways. It's one of those things that everything was built a hundred years ago and everyone thought that it was permanent and now we're realizing it's not. But that's also one of, as Jordan was saying, one of the things with several money signs and several clocks. So something we need to start planting the roots for now. So some of the things that require less money and less time. Again, we'll just circle right back to that pedestrian plaza. I know that there are a lot of people that aren't in favor of it and that aren't in favor of outdoor dining. So I want you to help us understand uh, from an economic standpoint, what that means for your typical resident in Ridgewood and your merchant actually um, having a pedestrian plaza. How does that benefit the community? I think it's a huge benefit for residents, um, especially people who live closer to town who can just kind of walk right in and walk right out. I know that a lot of people with strollers and everything, it's just easier for them to do that. I've had this experience and I know a lot of contemporaries my age have where people, it becomes almost a destination and your friends from other towns come in. And I think that's very beneficial for the business owners because you have people coming in so they can go out to brunch at this place, but then you like linger around and you go to all the other stores and it becomes like a, it becomes beneficial for everyone. I also do understand that for the, a lot of the opposition, like you get into the struggles of we have this downtown and we need the roads so that we can get the deliveries and everything. It's a lot of coordination, but I think it's a lot of coordination that can, that can be done if everyone gets on board and everyone talks to each other. Were you a part, I don't think you were, I think you were too young, but um, were you a part of the Times Square revitalization when they turned Times Square into a pedestrian plaza? What are your, you weren't, and so what's your opinion of that, of Times Square? Because that was a big obstacle that they had to overcome as well. There were a lot of people down there that said, oh my gosh, how are we going to get our goods? And somehow or another, they solved that issue. Yeah, they did. And it was so successful. They did it to almost all the other squares and they made the whole Broadway all the way down turned into partially pedestrian. And it just it turns it into a destination, which I think is a lot of a lot of what people are looking for these days. Those like experience based, you know, you can Instagram a kind of thing. That's what people are looking for. That's where people want to spend their money. Right. One thing that we talk a little bit about is kind of a cohesive experience. And so with the historic preservation, we're looking at kind of having consistency or certain kind of style with the looks of buildings and the designs people put up. In addition, I think, you know, when you walk into like the Garden State Mall, for instance, you know, you're at the mall. So I'm at the mall and I'm going to this store. And in some sense, it would be kind of cool if you're at Ridgewood and you're going to this place, the same the same way there's like a larger yeah. uh, kind of unit. So, and we talk a little bit about how to create that experience. And I don't know if there's any insight that you have from you know your experience, your knowledge and your expertise in some ways that we can try to do 
create that experience for, uh, you know, going to just Ridgewood beyond just the store you went to? Part of it is the signs. And I've noticed the signs popping up in recent years. Those are super helpful because they you're like, oh, I, I need that as well. I can go over there. A lot of it, and it's exactly what you were just saying. I know they just planted a ton of trees. A lot of it is creating a sense of place and the character of it. And no one wants to walk down Franklin Avenue because the car is zooming like it, it's, it's a lot. Um, whereas you walk down Ridgewood Avenue and it's a little bit more quaint and everything. You're, you need to create a sense of place. And what Ridgewood has that a lot of other places don't, and I think the Historic Preservation Commission has done very well in this, it has an authenticity, which is a lot of what people are looking for when they want the sense of place. It has all of the original, many of the original buildings and with much of the original feel and everything. So I think combining that with more modern wayfinding tools, like honestly, you could even have like a map on your phone that just pops up and tells you like that kind of stuff. Or when people go on Google, I know you can like, have Google updated with what stores are where. Stuff like that, I think, would be very beneficial. Because half of the time you're walking down the street and people have their head in their phone, so you know they're on their phone. That's a great idea. I love that idea. How can we get that going? I don't know, but I can look into it and get back to you. I do think that is really important because I personally want to make Ridgewood a destination community, and I want to do that by bringing some of the arts into our community. I think this is in the master plan, too, to put murals up and things, installations and things like that. So we're working on a project now that will come to the His Historic Preservation Commission shortly where we're putting a mural in the pedestrian tunnel that connects the West Village of Ridgewood to the east side. So that's very exciting. And it would be really fun for people to find that on their phone and go and take pictures of it. I'm really super excited about that. It's something else I would love to add to that. Like part of what I did, the preservation thing is I mapped digitally all of the historic sites because sometimes people are into that. Like you could have historic sites be like, what's this cool old house? And then you're like, that's Dr. Room's house. It's like 300 I love that. Old. And then, yeah, the murals. There we say you put the butterflies up and the bachelorette parties come. Mm -hmm. So another set of recommendations are the residential front yard setback standards for the open porches. Can you expound on that a little so I can understand what it means for homeowners? Yeah. So every year, the zoning board provides a set of recommendations for the planning board. At the end of the year, it's like their year end one. And this year, they came to us with an incredibly robust one. They came to our last meeting and explained it to us. The zoning board is very, very, very backlogged. Part of it is though there's a lot of COVID construction, but part of it is they keep getting these same applications from houses that want to put a front porch on or want to expand, but they have a pre-existing grandfathered in porch that doesn't work with the current zoning because the zoning is wonderful, but that's the problem with zoning. It doesn't cover everything, especially in a community like ours that was largely built before zoning. So they came to us and for the porches and the front yard setbacks, I think they had about 30 or 40 examples of homeowners who had to go through the entire process with the zoning board, pay the architect and pay the lawyer and go to one or two or several zoning board meetings. And out of all, I want to say 30, 28 of them were approved. And they were like, this is kind of ridiculous. It's wasting our time. It's wasting the time of the homeowners. We need to adjust the zoning. They had a couple of recommendations. One of them was instead of having like a 30 foot setback and that's it, it's like within 10 feet of your neighbors. So it's more aligned with 
your existing streetscape rather than just a kind of arbitrary number. The zoning board is wonderful and it's this amazingly well-researched report. And a couple of those that are very specific to porches and that come from them telling us these people, it's ridiculous, they should be able to do this as of right. So it'll help their workload and help just everyone because I've done that in my old house. It's it's a lot of work and a lot of time. And I could imagine that spending all of that money on architects and lawyers, you know, you've probably spent more on that than you did the porch. Yeah. <laughs> some, and the porch was already there. And it was like in my old house it was built in 1920. It was already there, but it didn't conform to our 2020 zoning. I have another question for you when it comes to smart growth. We need to be repurposing some of the buildings that we have in the village, specifically our churches. Did the master plan touch on any of that? And if so, what are some of the things that the churches could be redeveloped into? They did, but I don't think they specifically said what should happen to them. I think it's one of those that the planning board needs to go through. I know they everything was mapped. We need to go through and figure out what we want to do with those sites, because I think town has 25 churches. And part of it, I know there's a huge push to turn some of those into fields. And I know that some people want to develop them as like commercial nodes within, because I know we've lost a lot of the tiny commercial nodes in residential villages that work in a historic town like this. But I, I'm not sure the master plan actually specifically said, I think that's one of those that we need to do a little extra research on top of the recommendation. I tried as hard as I could to read all what, what did you say it was, Jordan? 463. <laughs> what, what, what's that, Diane? Oh, I said it's a lot. I, even now I go through and I'm like, oh, I missed that typo. It kills me. Oh, well. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of great information in the master plan. And I skimmed over that part of the church, but I want to redevelop at some point. If the Methodist church doesn't increase their congregation, I suspect that that building will be vacant eventually. And I would love for the village to purchase it and put in a performing arts center there. I think that would be a great space right next to the parking garage, center of town. It's a huge building. There's a church in Montreal. My son goes to school in Montreal. There's a church in Montreal and they've done exactly that with it. And boy, is it fun to go into live performances with all that stained glass around you. And it's, there's something sort of spiritual about it in a funky way. <laughs> it's really fun to be there and just feel that energy uh, in that space. So I would love for us to do that at the church there. That also goes back to like the pedestrian plaza and the Eiffel Tower. Like that is a destination. People will come to Ridgewood to do that. And then on top of that, they'll go out to dinner or they'll go get ice cream or that will bring people in from out of town. What we are encouraging merchants to recognize is that the pedestrian plaza gives them a captive audience. And it is their responsibility to captivate that audience, to bring them into their places of business. And so when we're talking about the pedestrian plaza, it is all day Saturday and on Sunday. So really, the only time that people can shop is on Saturday. So I would like to know if this is under your purview, who decides if the shop should be open at night? Because I think that would be really beneficial to the boutiques and some of the other stores where they could be open at night and they could benefit from the pedestrian plaza rather than being forced to participate in it on Saturday afternoon only. I think that's a village council thing. What's your opinion on them being open on Sundays? Well, I'd love that, that but I think that's they a can. blue laws thing. Blue laws, I right? know, I, but I'm like, you know how there's like, I think backyard living is open on Sundays. Like if it was like <clears throat> downtown Ridgewood can be open. 
there's like very know. weird rules to what the there's no way to do that to include like you know cvs it's, it's based on how much revenue i think is associated with what you're selling well, i think it's like it's about the goods the type of goods that you can sell if they're you know like medicine that's important food is important adirondack chairs adirondack chairs are really important so that's, that's yeah that gets through okay. both ends is open books are important i don't know i feel like i i wish there was a way ridgewood just downtown could be like we need this open sundays and Me then too. it would be a good alternative to because you can't go to the mall it would give us like a little boost i don't know how to do that i just always thought that would be great Ridgewood would go rogue Wait. against the rest of the county i love it yeah we make our own <laughs> county <laughs> rebels there's so many different elements to talk about planning in some sense you kind of want to talk about them all, but at the same time, you kind of want to focus on where the priorities are over the next couple of years. I mean, my hope, Diane, is that we can have this kind of conversation more frequently because yeah. there's just so much to it. I mean, there's, there's no so way to get it all so in. Yeah. <laughs> there's no way to get it all in one conversation. So I guess getting back in my mind to, to some of the priorities, uh, floodplains and some of the changes, whether it be from climate change or just how the, the town is changing. It sounds like that's something that when we look at those clocks, well, the more we push it off, the more clocks are going to get added to it because that, it's yeah, I like that. there's that aspect, right? There's, there's, okay, we got to tackle some of the stuff because it's going to continue to get worse. Then there's stuff that's really low hanging fruit. What's kind of that challenging stuff right in the middle that you just feel like we need to do, but you know, in putting it in one group or, or the other of, oh, it's cheap and easy and quick, or, oh, it's really long, but we need to start solving it now. What's some of that stuff just from a like, you know, what the vision for Ridgewood should be that, that kind of falls in the middle that might end up being a little bit maybe more controversial. I can think of one exactly off the bat, um, and it's a preservation one. The, one of the recommendations is a demolition delay ordinance, and a lot of other towns similar to Ridgewood have this, where if you are in historic districts generally are really complicated. I'm not going to get into them in detail now, but Ridgewood has like locally designated districts where you can pretty much do whatever you want to your property um, as long as it's not a variance. And if it's a variance, you need to just have HPC sign off on it, basically. And in these districts, because it's as of right, you can knock down historic buildings, no questions asked. That causes both ways a lot of controversy because it changes the character of the town. But at the same time, like it's your property, you should be able to do whatever you want. There's really rational arguments on both sides. So a demolition delay ordinance, which the HPC and I had research in a bunch of other towns is not telling you you can't knock down your house in the historic district, but you have to wait. I think it's 90 days is the general one. And you have to come to HPC and HPC will present you with the history of the house and why it's important and things you could do to your house instead of completely demolishing it and just kind of like give you an argument of why you should keep it for the sake of the community. And then you go and do whatever you want because it's your property. And I think something like that, it kind of teeters the middle ground where you can still do whatever you want, but there is an argument for it. But it's also something like that is a little, it's a little bit controversial because people don't want to be told what they can do on their properties. And then at the same time, other people buy into neighborhoods thinking it's this beautiful Victorian neighborhood. And then all of a sudden it's split levels two years later. And they're like, that's not what I signed up for. Yeah. So stuff like that is in the middle. And there's definitely a few of them in there that yeah, they're controversial because everyone has a different opinion and no one's wrong and no one's right. It's just, it's tough. That brings to mind Valley Hospital. What did the, master plan recommend for valley actually 
<laughs> Valley, we figured that out over the summer before the master plan even finished. So they just incorporated what we approved, which was legally we had to approve two things. One was um, we had to rezone it. So what's there is legal and it's fine and it's a hospital. And then the other thing that we adopted was in the future, if Valley leaves, they can keep the existing uses, like use it as an outpatient facility. And the other side of it was redeveloped with housing, a bunch of which needs to be affordable, even though the federal government's standards for affordability are ridiculous. But uh, some of it needs to be affordable and it needs to have an adequate amount of open space. And that site's like done. The master plan also touched on transportation. And I know there's been conversation about our bus station moving over to the train station, which makes sense to me. Is that something that they explored? Yeah, they did. I think it's a great idea too. And they also explored one of the problems with the current bus route. And I've I literally saw this happen, I think in September, and it was terrifying. The Ridgewood Ave wasn't built for those huge buses. And I, someone outside the Daily Treat literally opened their, do- their door and the bus smashed it. And it was, it was terrifying to watch. Everyone was fine. But I mean, I think everyone has that fear when they open their door in Ridgewood Ave that a bus is going to come and smash their door. So I think one of the recommendations was to have it go up Franklin. That's a wider street and that makes more sense. And it makes more sense to have all the transit in one hub. And then if you do that, we can do last mile and first mile. It basically would be like a trolley that would go around and pick people up at, you know, like Spring and Irving or Godwin and Doremus. And it'll bring you to the trains. You just have to walk from your house to there and then it would bring you and it covers your first mile and your last mile. So there's so much less commuter parking necessary. So it's a ride share program. They they have that in Delray Beach, Florida and in Aspen. They have it in Newport Beach. And it's a little beautiful golf cart that can be winterized and people share a ride together. All three of us could be on that little trolley together. And what pays for it is uh, advertising. So whatever front or whatever. So it's not even that it's a huge expense to the village. I know Uber and Lyft and other rideshare programs are really popular now. So I don't know if that will ever come to fruition. And with that, I'd like to talk a little bit about EV stations. Was that touched on? Are we expecting to have some EV charging stations? I know there's some in the parking garage. Are there plans to put up anymore? That was just passed by, I think it was New Jersey. The state just passed an ordinance like in the last year requiring that all publicly funded or publicly approved, I think, parking needs to have X amount of space. I think it's like one per 50. I'm not totally sure. The ordinance is so new and it's a little bit ambiguous of what exactly is necessary that no one really knows at this point. We know for a fact that when you build something like the parking garage and the town is building it, that you need to have X amount of spots. But as far as everything else goes, it's one of those, how do you tell people on private property that they need to? And then how do they stop people how did they stop me i'm not i don't go there from just going and using their ev station it's a brand new topic in planning and it's a brand new law that was passed in new jersey that we're not sure how much how much teeth it has at this point i gotcha my last and most passionate topic is pedestrian safety Yes. What is in the master plan that is going to help keep our pedestrians safe? I want to know if the planning board addressed any of that. Yeah. If you look through the implementation matrix that Jordan mentioned, the circulation element has very, very specific things. And a lot of them relate to bike lanes and pedestrian safety and suggestions being, I think this would be so helpful by the post office intersection bump outs. I think would yes. be huge in town because it would slow everyone down, especially like when you're pushing a stroller it's just in front of you like ah it's terrifying 
So stuff like that would be huge. Our streets, for the most part, are, I mean, we're not New York. Our streets aren't wide enough to build bike lanes that are protected. So we need to figure out a way to, I mean, like protected with like a huge thing of concrete. We can protect them. We just have to figure out how to do it. And I think something like that under the underpass would be huge. I mean, we do it for the pedestrians on the sidewalks too. We can do it for the bikes. And I think a lot of that would be helpful. A lot of the kids going to middle school and high school are riding their bikes too. If there were routes from the west side to the east side directing you to the high school or like directing you to BF and GW, a lot of that stuff is in there and needs to be implemented. And thankfully, a lot of that is the low money, low time thing. So it should be low hanging fruit. Plus, we need more bike racks. And I'd like to have more artistic bike racks, you know, to kind of add to that vibe of yeah. And did you touch on Franklin Avenue at all? Yes. I'm, I know we talked about it so much in the meetings, like the pedestrian bump outs and the trees. It, it has, it has that cool, like old car route auto shop character, which is kind of trendy. Like we could, we could capitalize on that. We just need to do it. We're trying here very hard to offer a public service and you have been really helpful in that. You've lent us a lot of ideas to think about. No, I can't wait to come back. (laughs) Well, that's good. We love that about you. Well, actually, Jeannie, I meant to tell you. um, So I went to the, they had a Wizards event. It's like Mm -hmm. a thing event at the high school. I ran into someone. This is like a childhood family friend. I haven't seen them in over 20 years, I would guess. But somehow you just like, you know, see someone, you're like, I know you. And, you know, we, we kind of had this like, looking at each other and then I was like oh my god and we connected for a second and she was like oh yeah and I actually I've because I was like oh it's been so long since I've seen you and she's like yeah actually I listen to you every week I actually listen to your podcast I was like get out of here <laughs> and it was like one of those like that's awesome that's awesome yeah that is great yeah no. I mean we're averaging about a hundred listens per episode it's paltry when you think about you know how big our town is but I hope that listenership increases maybe because again, I have no idea what I'm doing. So if we could actually get a professional because Jordan does a great job. Um, So I'm trying desperately to find him a co-host to replace me. So if you know of anybody, um, be in touch. That'll be one of my questions now. Are you, are you good at audio editing? (laughs) No, 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 not editing. I want them to host it. Oh, do you want to host it? (laughs) Never. (laughs) Well, Diane, thank you so much for coming on today. We really enjoyed talking to you and learning a lot more about what's going on with the town. We're super excited to have you on in the future and hear about how things are progressing. And we can't wait to see all the positive impact and benefit that that has for the town overall. So um, thank you so much. Thanks, Diane. I'm really so appreciative for everything that you do for this town. We're so lucky that you decided to come back and serve and your expertise and your knowledge has just, it's irreplaceable. So thanks again for everything that you do for us. Thanks for having me. I look forward to talking with you again. All right. Awesome. See ya. Thanks again, Diane.